Hey, welcome to, um, I guess, yeah, I'm transitioning uh, Taka MMT from fully from YouTube to uh, to here. So if you want to hear more of these, but you want to hear previous ones, you can go to uh, my YouTube channel. Uh, put that link in the bottom portion too. Uh, if you want more of this or any other content, uh, become a 99 cent a month subscriber or subscribe to my YouTube channel. Anyway, um, A Life Without Debt. This is uh, still coming from uh, The Depths of Myth by Stephanie Kelton, uh, Modern Monetary Theory and the Birth of the People's Economy. Uh, this by the way, page 95, so I may have to this so far. Uh, a Life Without Debt. Just think of it. No more government shutdowns as lawmakers engage in theatrical uprising over raising the debt ceiling limit, as they're about to do here pretty soon again. Uh, no one uh, compare, no, sorry, no one comparing you, Uncle Sam to a spendthrift who's running up the credit card and borrowing from China. Uh, no fear of losing access to the bond market and being forced into default like Greece. No econom uh, economist arguing about whether interest rates will be low enough to keep the debt on a sustainable path. And uh, best of all, and best of all, no more stress about how to cover your share of the national debt. We could rip the bumper sticker off right off. We actually did it once. It was 1835. Andrew Jackson was president. And it was the only time in U.S. history. The public debt was paid all the way down. That was long before the Federal Reserve was created, so the debt wasn't gobbled up out of existence by the central bank. Instead, it was eliminated by an old-fashioned way, that is, by reversing fiscal deficits and paying off bondholders. It didn't end so well. It took more than a decade to retire the entire debt. <clears throat> It happened because the government ran fiscal surpluses from 1823 to 1836. Since, since it was taxed away, uh, taxing away more money than it was spending in each of those years, it didn't issue new debt. Instead, as bonds matured, the government simply paid them off. By 1835, the U.S. was debt-free. It was also uh, it was also headed for one of the worst economic downturns the the country has ever experienced. In hindsight, it seems obvious why things unfolded the way they did. By the way, let me know if you can hear this. I do have one fan on, but I'm doing this the way I usually do my my YouTube channel, um, having ear, uh, earbuds plugged in. So hopefully you can hear me. Let me know. Um, if you can, uh, by uh, by commenting on one of my uh, on my upcoming live streams today. Anyway, fiscal surpluses suck money out of the economy. Fiscal deficits do the opposite. As long as they're not excessive, deficits can help to maintain a good economy by supporting incomes, sales, and profits. They're not imperative, but if they if they disappear for too long, eventually the economy hits a wall. As Frederick Sayer, the prolific writer and professor of public and international affairs at the University of Pittsburgh, wrote in, 19, in 1996, the U.S. has experienced six, six significant economy depressions, and each was 
preceded by a sustainable, uh, sustained, excuse me, sustained period of budget balancing. The historic record is clear. Each and every time the government substantially reduces the, na uh, the national debt, the currency fell into depression. Could it help? Could it have? Could it have? Could it have been a remarkable coincidence? Thayer didn't think so. He blamed the economic myths and drove politicians to wrestle their budgets into surplus on the flawed belief that paying down debt was both morally and fiscally responsible. As we see from the insights of MMT, government surpluses shift deficits into non-government uh, sector. Uh, the problem is that currency issuer uh, users can't sustain their deficits in, indefinitely. Eventually, the private sector reaches the point where it can't handle the debt it has accumulated. When that happens, spending grinds sharply lower and the economy falls into depression. Since Thayer's work was published, the U.S. experienced one <clears throat> one other brief period, which was 98 through 2001, of sustained fiscal surpluses. It happened during Bill Clinton's presidency and made Democrats still look back on it as a crowning achievement. Red ink was eliminated and Uncle Sam was back in the black for the first time in decades. The surpluses began in 98 and by 99 the White House was ready to party like it was 99 the following year. White House economists began working on the report titled Life After Death. Death? Sorry, Death? Debt. It was supposed to deliver the uh, celebratory news that the United States was on track to retire the entire national debt by 2012. At first, paying off the debt seemed like the kind of accomplishment that might be worthy of national parade. The White House was preparing to feature the news in its annual economic report of the president, but then everyone got cold feet and that chapter of the report was hidden from public view. We only know about it because National Public Radio's Planet Money obtained a secret government report outlining one, what once looked like a potential crisis, the possibility of the U.S. government might pay off its entire debt. Instead of shouting it from the rooftops, White House officials quietly tucked it away. The reason? They were worried about the broader implications of wiping out the entire U.S. Treasury market. It was a return to a love-hate relationship many public officials had the, with the national debt. On one hand, the White House would have loved to uh, eliminate the internal, sorry, the national debt. On the other hand, it couldn't risk getting rid of all treasuries. What worried policymakers the most was prospect of depriving the Federal Reserve of the key instrument. Uh, it relied on to conduct monetary policy, government debt. At the same time, sorry, at the time, the Fed was relying on government bonds to manage short-term interest rates. When, wait a minute, this way? yeah, when the Fed wanted to raise, uh, wanted to raise interest rates, it sold some of the treasuries buyers uh, paid for those bonds using a portion of their bank reserves by removing enough reserves. The Fed could move the interest rate up to cut rates. The Fed would do the opposite, buying treasuries and paying them with newly created reserves without treasuries. The Fed would need to find some other way to set interest rates. <coughs> Excuse me. 
in the end, the problem solved itself. By, 20, by 2002, the surpluses were gone and the U.S. was no longer on track to pay down the national debt, much less retire the full amount. The federal budget moved back into deficit after 2001 when the stock market bubbled, which had been a supporting consumer spending burst. A recession began in 2001. It was a fairly mild recession, but the demand had been done. As well as seen in the next chapter, the Clinton surpluses have weakened private sector balance sheets, magnifying the demand caused by the arrival of the Great Recession, which began in 2007. The Great Recession char changed the way the Federal Reserve conducted monetary policy. In November of 2008, the Fed launched the first of three rounds of massive bond buying program called quantitative easing. Among other things, the Fed hoped its program would help stimulate the U.S. economy by lowering uh, long-term interest rates by the time it was over. The Fed had gobbled up some $4.5 in bonds, including nearly $3 trillion in U.S. Treasuries. In addition to using quantitative easing to push longer-term interest rates lower, the Fed also changed the way it managed its short-term interest rate. Instead of buying and selling Treasuries to add and subtract reserves, the Fed switched to a more direct and more efficient method of interest rate support. It simply started paying interest on reserve balance. Today, the Fed can adjust the term, short-term interest rate at any time it chooses, simply by announcing that it will pay a new rate. What this means is that times have changed. The dollar is no longer tied to gold. The U.S. issues a freely floating fiat currency, so it doesn't need to tax or borrow because it can spend indeed as we learned in chapter one the stab or stab model reflects the way the economy actually works taxes aren't important because they help the government pay the bills they're the, yeah they they're important because they help to prevent government spending from creating an inflationary problem or as i've been saying is uh, making room for more spending um, sim uh, similar similar bond sales aren't aren't important because they allow the government to finance fiscal deficits. They are important because they drain off excess reserves, which enables the Fed to hit a positive interest rate target. But today, the Fed pays interest on reserve balance, so it so it no longer relies on Treasuries to hit its rate target. So why keep them, them around? Should we love them or hate them? Or sorry, should we love them or leave them? Is the national debt a national treasure, as Alexander Hamilton believed, or is it a irresponsible and unpatriotic, as Barack Obama described it? Should we should we treasure it or trash it? One thing is for sure: we don't want to start wiping out U.S. Treasuries the ugly way, the the, uh, the ugly way. In 1835 way, the Clinton way, by building fiscal surpluses on the back of unsustainable private sector deficits, as we'll see in the next chapter, that has predictably negative consequences for our economy. Uh, if we want to make national debt disappear, there are more painless ways to go about it. The most straightforward option is to do it, uh, is to do it with the, the loaner gone described. Simply let the central bank buy up government bonds in exchange for bank reserves, a pain-free transaction that turns yellow dollars back into green dollars. It can be carried out using 
Na uh, nothing more than a keyboard at the Federal Reserve. Another option would be to phase out the issuance of treasuries all over time. Instead of selling bonds to drain off the reserve balance, the results from deficit spending, we can use leave. Uh, we could just leave the reserves in the system. We could do it without interfering with the Federal Reserve's ability to conduct monetary policy because the Fed doesn't need government bonds to hit its short-term interest rate target. Over time, all the outstanding bonds will mature and the debt will gradually disappear. There is another option. We can learn to live with them. There, uh, there is nothing inherently dangerous about offering a safe, interest-bearing way for people to hold on the dollars. If we choose to live with, we live with them. We should uh, come to grips with the fact that the thing we call the national debt is nothing more than a footprint from the past. It tells us where we've been, not where we're going, and it records the history of the many deficits that have been run that have been run since the birth of our uh, government in 1789. The bloody war, world wars are many, uh, our many recessions and the decisions taken by the thousands of people elected to Congress over the years. What matters is not the size of the so-called debt or who, or who holds it, but uh, whether we can look back with pride knowing that our stockpile of treasuries existed because of many uh, mostly positive interventions that were taken on behalf of our democracy. If we're not going to eliminate treasuries, then we must find a way to make peace with national debt. Perhaps we should start by giving it another name. National debt is nothing like a household debt, so using the word debt just leads to confusion and unnecessary angst. We could just refer to it as part of our uh, net money supply. It, I doubt yellow, yellow dollars will catch on, but hey, it's worth a shot. In Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, Julia famously inquires, inquires, what's in the name? She was in trouble when she learned that Romeo was in Montague, <coughs> Montague, or Montague, some of that. For her, a rose by any other name would, could smell, would smell uh, just as sweet. Love, as they say, is blind. On the political side, words matter. It's, the, it's time to come up with a different, for, uh, with a new name for these interest-bearing dollars. And that is the end of my confusing reading. Anyway, but the next chapter will be number four, uh, 101, uh, the red ink is our black ink. But uh, later on today, I'm going to, I'm going to be doing a second um, uh, second episode on this new new version of my anchor. Uh, I will be reading from uh, Reg, uh, uh, the Permits the uh, Regulation Report website and uh, give my feedback on that as well. So um, anyway, uh, join me later on for my, hopefully my live stream that will not go offline. If not, uh, wherever I live off, I'll upload uh, my internet sucks, but uh, don't get Spectrum if you have a choice. As far as the part goes, they, they don't really take care of the network very well. Um, anyway, uh, thanks for listening. Um, yeah, thanks for listening, and I will uh, uh, be back on later, again with more news. Also, be on my live stream later on with Socialist and Union, uh, and yeah, Socialist and Union News. Uh, thanks for listening. Peace out for now, uh, and subscribe for just 99 cents. You get this, among other things. 
uh, or subscribe to my channel on YouTube. I'll leave the uh, description in the uh, I'll leave the uh, URL in the in the box below. Peace out for now, and I'll talk to you later.